Hello and welcome to All Tamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. And today we're so happy to have this podcast in partnership with Johns Hopkins University, where we're going to discuss the growing security challenges the U.S. faces over the next decade. Where are those challenges going to come from and are we ready? And what's it going to take to meet those challenges? We're very lucky to have John McLaughlin with us. He's a distinguished practitioner in residence at SICE and the former acting director of the CIA and world expert on security. Enough said, right? I'm sure you're pretty convinced, like we are, that he's the right person to ask these questions to. So, Peter, you're absolutely right. So let's warm up the subject before our guest comes in. It seems that risks are multiplying every day from growing tensions with China to cyber attacks from Russia to threats from North Korea, the fallout from Afghanistan. Frankly, the world does not feel friendly. And even after smoothing out ruffled feathers with France and sitting at the table with the G20 and a hopeful sounding COP26, it does seem that the U.S. is increasingly on the defensive. The U.S. government's recent move with Australia and the U.K. to offset the inroads China has taken in the Pacific, outreach to allies like India to create a barrier to Russia and its very vague building back better slogan, often sound like a country trying to retrench. Yeah, it's a worrisome picture, Mooney. Ford Affairs recently published this piece on the new Cold War, warning about more dangerous rivalry between the U.S. and China. And it's clear now that China has a really good head start. COVID's impact on cybersecurity just can't be understated. Teleworking fractured networks and make business and governments even more vulnerable to hacks and data theft and breaches. And in the U.S., supply disruptions everywhere at uh, supply chains and health networks and security experts always say that Russia and China are the first two countries of origin of all of these attacks. So let's hear from Taya on the growth of cyber threats and how they've multiplied even more during COVID. I'm Taya Vanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at social justice and youth issues. So cyber threats, they're not some obscure thing of the future. They're here and they're real. In 2020, ransomware payments reached over $400 million. That's a more than 20% increase in reported ransomware cases from the previous year. And then in 2021, we saw some of the biggest hacks in history. President Biden's infrastructure bill includes about $2 billion in funding for cybersecurity, which is almost certainly the biggest ever government investment in that space. What I really want to highlight is this new frontier, which is really interesting and exciting, and it's called cyber threats in space. And you heard that right. Cyber analysts are pushing the Department of Homeland Security to ramp up cyber protections for satellites and other space-based systems, which they say are far too vulnerable to hacks that could upend large parts of the economy. So, for example... A hack that disrupted satellite-assisted navigation could jam up things from shipping and trucking to farms that rely on precision navigation tools that could wreak havoc on the economy. I mean, talk about supply chain issues. So now some experts are pushing for DHS to declare space to be the 17th official critical infrastructure sector, joining others such as energy, transportation, and water. And that could essentially make it easier for governments and industry to work together on developing cyber standards and sharing information about threats. 
What do you think? Should we be moving into protecting space now or should we focus on threats closer to planet Earth? Tweet it all from our podcast and let me know. It's true, but it's not just cyber, Taya. Unfortunately, just this month, there was a credible threat of terrorism by ISIS in neighboring Virginia, which threw a whole suburb into a panic. And while North Korea hasn't made any waves in recent weeks, that doesn't mean it's been totally silenced. Officials reacted to South Korea-U.S. military drills, promised to retaliate, and the, the Iran-U.S. agreement has gone cold. There's some rumblings of it starting over. But really, all of this reminds the world of the ever-accelerating Iranian moves to enrich uranium and build nuclear weapons made in Tehran. And even if the U.S. tries to assert American leadership around the world, domestic extremists continue to worry security experts. The January 6th attack on the Capitol showed Americans that its institutions are not bulletproof, which everybody thought they were, that its identity can crumble, that its model based on freedom and equality is very fragile. Domestic extremists violent acts and internal clashes are increasing, breaking down the walls of its democracy. And more than ever, domestic terrorism also needs to be taken very seriously. You know, I know this sounds like sort of an incredibly listy thing, but it really is true that you have these endless lists of old threats and new threats. And I'm going to add even to this list, you've got these sonic attacks on embassies uh, on u.s embassies uh that are happening first in havana and then in other countries phishing data breaches attacks on allies hacked elections threats and provocations coming from a lot of places around the world and of course we can't leave out one of the most insidious security threats to humans everywhere which is climate change and, you know we talk about this at a time when the world is together in scotland to discuss climate change and it's not clear that there's going to be these groundbreaking solutions, you know, the U.S. and defense intelligence services have long ago mobilized on the climate change issue because they recognize the effects of climate change on accelerating migration. You know, there are more people on the move today than ever before in history on financial stability as insurance markets get completely upside down with uh, what's happening on, on seashores, rising seas, and what that means for the long-term viability of naval bases and keyboards, and on human safety, of course. And so the U.S., presumably the strongest country in the world, seems sometimes to be more fragile than ever, which is, I guess, a good time, Muni, to bring in our guests. Let me introduce John McLaughlin. He's the Distinguished Practitioner in Residence in the Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Paul Nitze School of Advanced International Studies of Johns Hopkins University. A 1966 graduate of Johns Hopkins SICE, he served as Acting Director of Central Intelligence from July to September of 2004 and held multiple top-level posts in the CIA for over 30 years, focusing on regions such as Europe, Russia, and Eurasia. In addition to earning his master's degree in international relations from SAIS, he's an alumni of the U.S. Army Infantry Officer Candidate School at Fort Benning and completed a U.S. Army tour in Vietnam from 1968 to 69. John is the recipient of several awards from the intelligence community. He's been a visiting professor and is a member of multiple advisory groups worldwide. Professor John McLaughlin, it's such an honor to have you with us on Altamar. Oh, thank you, Peter. Good to talk to you. 
So let's ask maybe the simplest question first. What is the top security risk for the United States in the coming decade? You know, listening to your list earlier, <laughs> for the first time, I began to think about that question, what is the top thing? And I'd make two general comments to frame that. Uh, listening to your list, uh, it occurs to me that one of the rules of success in life generally, and certainly in foreign affairs, is success comes to those who focus. Because you can you can go down a list like that and you can run from issue to issue to issue and never really get much done. You have to focus. And the second thing is the United States is in, I think, a unique position that we've never been in before. If you think back to the moment when we emerged on the world stage, World War II, you know, what we've dealt with most successfully are situations where we were looking for total victory over someone with no second act, like the Nazis, or for that matter, the Cold War. Total victory, no second act, they went away. That's not going to happen again. And so we're in a world where we have genuine competitors for the first time, really for the first time, and across the board, potential, and some would say already pure competitor in China. So when I think about the most serious problem and I focus, I would say it really is getting our relationship with China right, because that ripples across all of these other issues that you mentioned, dealing with Iran, dealing with North Korea, dealing with climate change, dealing with pandemic. If the two most powerful, wealthiest nations in the world do not have a working partnership of some sort, along with their adversarial dimension, all of these things are just going to fester and continue to be a problem. So that's kind of my first principle is get this relationship right. Let's talk a little bit about the U.S. and China. You know, there have been these articles about this new Cold War and yeah. how similar is it to the original Cold War? I think that's a bad metaphor to apply to the relationship with China. I would never do that. Uh, in fact, Joe Nye of Harvard just wrote a, a long and impressive uh, op-ed making that point that Cold War is the wrong metaphor. He's striking themes that I've stri struck in print as well, which is, you know, Cold War, going back to my first point, this was, this was a time when we fought someone to the end. Someone had to win. Someone had to go away. They were the one who lost. They went away. It's not going to happen with China. Plus, it was a declining power. China's a rising power. Uh, let me just leave it at that on the Cold War metaphor. Here's the way I approach problems. I say, what are the realities? What are the realities we're dealing with? I'm on that end of the foreign policy analytic spectrum. And I think with, with China, uh, let me give you four realities that I think. There are no easy answers. It's complicated. That's the first thing. Whereas with the Soviet Union, it was pretty black and white. And with World War II, pretty black and white. Second, we can't spend our way to superiority as we have in the past. China will be, if there's no great discontinuity, the world's largest economic power within a number of years, maybe already are in terms of purchasing power parity. Third, no one really wants a war with China, I hope. I hope. Maybe someone does, but, you know, I don't think anyone really wants a war with China. And fourth... You know, a real partnership with China is uh, not a, a likely foreseeable outcome in the, you know, in the immediate future. So where does it leave you? I think with three big strategies. First, deterrence. You've got to have deterrence. And deterrence, in this case, complicated. Again, you can't use the Cold War metaphor, but deterrence 
I think involves mainly using alliances as force multipliers and messaging. I was encouraged just this week to see that the European Union is now open to the idea of sending messages to China about being careful with Taiwan. In other words, adding to the international pressure to just cool it. Uh, Second big thing, uh, enhance our bilateral engagement. And I think the Biden administration seems to be trying to do this. You know, military to military, diplomat to diplomat, intelligence to intelligence. It doesn't mean you have to be friends. You just have to communicate. Churchill said it best, jaw-jaw is better than war-war. And third, take a look at our governance here at home. We can't make decisions in any sort of efficient way. Look at our Congress now, stalled, struggling, partisan deadlock. That doesn't happen in China. We're dealing with a system where decisions are made pretty quickly. Airports come and go. Railroads come and go. No, we don't want to be an authoritarian society, but we've got to streamline our decision-making here if we're going to be competitive. So those are my thoughts on how we get things straight with China. No easy answers, though. Well, I have so many questions, but I'm, not, I'm going to be disciplined and, and stick. Oh, yeah, we could, be, we could unpeel all those China things. They're, they're, they are all rabbit holes that we could go down. Absolutely. Uh, deterrence, for example. Deterrence has three Cs, communication, credibility, capability. We could talk about all three of those. Credibility, for example. Have we heard ours? I think we probably have. Yeah. Let's move to Russia. Is it still a major threat to the United States? I mean, particularly security, and then let's move to cybersecurity. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. Russia is so interesting. The last time I was in Russia, which was now, I guess, 2018, and I'd been there in 2016 as well with uh, a group that um, we were doing what you'd call track two, that is having discussions with the Russians on the matters uh, that, that concern our, both of our governments, but we weren't government officials former government officials. I was walking down the street in Moscow with a veteran diplomat, and I said to him, you know, why is it that we keep coming here? The economy of this place is about the size of Portugal. What, what is it about Russia? And he said something to me that really stuck. We were looking. It was a rainy, ugly night in Moscow, although beautifully lit. Uh, Moscow looks a lot better than it did in the Cold War days. And he said, you know, we say they're not a powerful country, but they keep showing up. And that's true. They keep showing up. I think we have to treat Russia as a serious power. And I think Biden actually made some headway on that in his meeting with Putin at Vienna, simply by treating him as a serious interlocutor, as opposed to just beating them up. They're a little beating up, too, on cyber and so forth. So here's, here's the secret of dealing with Russians. This comes from just my dealing with them. They always know what they want. And so you better know what you want, because they're good at chess. And I know what they want and what Putin wants. Putin wants three things. He wants control at home, wants to heavily influence his neighbors. He wants to weaken the Western alliance. And fourth, I guess as a fourth thing, he wants to be seen as a great power on the global stage. Why else is he in Libya, Africa, Syria? Now, what do we want? What's our desired end point with Russia? I think I'm reading Biden's meetings with him as saying our desired endpoint is not friendship or partnership, but it's kind of clarity in where we stand, where they stand, and cooperation when it's uh, when it's important. I've read, I don't know whether to take this seriously yet because I'm not in the government, I've read that uh, Putin has offered access to some 
uh, or encouraged uh, neighboring countries of Afghanistan to give us some access so that we can have a closer window into Afghanistan. I don't know whether that's a serious offer or, uh, you know, propaganda game playing and so forth, but certainly we can cooperate with the Russians on climate change, on uh, uh, terrorism and so forth. But just be aware, they know what they want and what they want is not what we want. So again, difficult relationship. So, Professor, I would like to ask you more about cybersecurity. What are the main cyber challenges we're facing right now, and how do we go about protecting the country from them in this increasingly digital world? Well, that's probably the biggest uh, issue we could discuss. And uh, in, in a short period, I would simply say, you say, what is the biggest challenge? In a way, the biggest challenge is organizing ourselves to deal with it because it's unlike any problem we've dealt with before. Uh, it has become what I would call a fourth domain of conflict. Prior to the technological revolution that brought us cyber, the domains of conflict were centuries old. Sea, land, air, not so much centuries old, but uh, certainly going back to balloon observation in the, uh, in the Civil War, but, and then, of course, air power in World War I begins. Now we have this fourth domain of conflict in a world we can't quite see, a world of fiber optic cables and, and, uh, and, and microwaves. So it's different in that respect. It's different, too, in that it's not just nations who are in playing. It's also private citizens, hackers. It's small groups of people. It's uh, ransomware people. So people, we can't solve it by dealing with other countries exclusively. And the other thing is when I say getting ourselves organized, I'm encouraged by one thing. Uh, in this administration, there is now a mechanism for connecting government because the capability to fight cyber attackers resides largely in an organization called the National Security Agency. Now, the National Security Agency has a, an online platform for collecting and reporting to companies and receiving from private sector reports of hacking and so forth so that you start to bring government tools together with private sector problems. This has been a major impediment to making progress on cyber, that a lot of the problem is in the private sector, but a lot of the capability is in the government, though there are some impressive private sector firms like CrowdStrike that are probably the equivalent of government. But when it comes to fighting back, that's mostly in the government, U.S. military and national security agencies. So those connections are now starting to weave together a bit because the uh, person heading this at the White House, Chris Inglis, is a former 17-year deputy director of the National Security Agency, one of the smartest people I ever worked with. So th there's that. I'm going to stop here because this is, again, one of those endless things. There's the issue of uh, how do we think about escalation? If you strike back at, say, another country that's engaged in a cyber attack, where does it stop? Now, we understand that in conventional war. It stops when the other person's stuff is destroyed and when Clausewitz, Clausewitz the, the German uh, Prussian uh, theoretician said back in the 19th century, uh, defeat the enemy and occupy his territory. Uh, we understand that. You don't do that in cyber. How do you win? Where does it stop? Uh, what is a counterstrike? Uh, that's all to be determined. Plus, we haven't had cyber Pearl Harbor. Came close with the uh, hack on the uh, Dominion pipeline. That got people's attention. But we haven't had that event that says, oh, wait a minute, as a country, like 
9-11 woke us up to terrorism. We haven't had that event with cyber. So I, I, I'm going to stop there and just, I guess I ba- my basic message is this is a whole new era we're just beginning to explore. I, I actually compare it to the beginning of the nuclear age. You know, we didn't know what to do with nuclear weapons, how to talk to others about them and so forth, but we figured it out over time with arms control and inspections and so forth and transparency and declarations. We're, we're at the, uh, the front end of that whole process with cyber. And then came COVID, which in itself is uh, starting to be considered a, a geopolitical risk just yeah. because of all the transformations in, in our daily lives. And it was already considered, cyber was considered a, a significant risk before COVID, but everyone at home has opened up vulnerabilities and business and government networks that have been used already by adversaries, opening up an entire new threat and an entire new line of this risk that is only just now being understood. Well, you, you know, you, your remark underlines something we haven't really talked about, and that is, I think, kind of on the frontiers of thinking right now, and for which you could not get a majority of support almost anywhere. But here, here's my thought. When you look at COVID and cyber in particular, and COVID is not the last pandemic we will deal with, uh, and you, you look at uh, nuclear problems generally and terrorism, all of these things cry out for a global response. And yet our global machinery is devised in another era uh, after World War II and rather creaky, creaky and not very well supported in, in public opinion or economically. Uh, so I think in a way, we're almost ripe for a new idea about how to work together globally. I don't know what it is. And I, you know, the United Nations was a, following on to the League of Nations, was a, a striking new idea appropriate to its time. We need something like that right now because all of these problems, you know, the United States is the most powerful country in the world, but it's long past the time when it can do things by itself. On the other hand, we haven't arrived at the time where other countries can do things without the United States. That's a kind of unique situation that we've never faced before. And I don't think we have the machinery globally to deal with that yet. So that's just, that's just me admiring the problem, not giving you a solution. <laughs> and then I was going to get into something even more concerning domestically is how health sectors, supply chain software, and infrastructure, energy, and food supply, it's already happened, but it could happen at a much greater scale in terms of attacks that could destabilize the world economy. So the question initially that I had before hearing you is how the, can the U.S. protect itself? But now that you're talking about this global response, how can the world respond to this threat? Well, you have to start, you know, at the beginning I said uh, the success comes to those who focus. And uh, here, I think the focus has to be on global cooperation, but it also has to be realistic. As someone pointed out the other day, you know, with the climate uh, summit, uh, how we have these well-articulated goals and solutions, but how can we really expect countries to work together harmoniously and efficiently when we can't even get our own citizens to wear masks or take vaccinations? So how does my first comment apply to that focus? Well, I think this requires a kind of leadership that has never happened before, which is 
something that communicates to publics that we, we have these problems. Uh, people, leaders who can communicate to publics, we have these problems, and it's going to take a while to, to solve them. We are, particularly in the United States, accustomed to rapid fixes to things. You know, we elect a president every four years. <laughs> China elects one every 25 years, it seems. Our national leadership needs to needs to bring us into an era of maturity that we haven't achieved yet in terms of patience and understanding. These problems aren't going to be solved overnight, and we're not going to solve them ourselves. We have to keep beating on the frontiers of cooperation with other countries. So it's important at the climate summit that China and the United States have jointly agreed to reduce emissions that contribute to rising global temperatures. Now, the immediate press reaction is, yes, but this is almost impossible. They won't really do it. Well, they won't do it all overnight, but I suspect it's better to have that agreement than to have no agreement. One of the things I learned in government is important change happens at the margins. By that, I mean you never solve the big problem overnight. You solve parts of it, and gradually you narrow, narrow it until the point where you have it working. Obamacare might be a good example of this. Remember how a disaster it was in the first year? Website didn't work. Everyone was unhappy. For four years, Trump tried to get rid of it. Now it's sort of seen as a good thing. Not perfect, but a good thing. That's kind of how this is going to go for the next couple of decades, I think. We're not going to stamp out COVID, but we'll get it to the point where we can live with it at a lower level. We're not going to ever eliminate terrorism totally. It's been there since biblical times and before at some level, but we can get it to the point where it's it's a nuisance more than an uh, earth-shaking event for the world. That's, uh, again, I'm kind of admiring the problem, but I'm also saying we're in a different era. We're not in the era when the United States could fight and win a war in four years. It's pretty amazing, World War II. We're not in that era. But we haven't been in that era for a while. I mean, Vietnam Correct. was, Vietnam was uh, certainly no example of that. Excellent. Absolutely. You know, you, you talked, Professor Bad, about the importance of leadership that in the United States and for leadership to be, to try to galvanize a greater public support through patient explanations of the problems that we have. But how does that work with what we saw in, on January 6th of this year, which shows that the vulnerabilities that, I mean, the security risks that exist in the United States are not only from overseas, but also so very domestic today. I mean, the United States has certainly seen that before, but I don't think it has ever seen it so blatantly since the Civil War. That's right. Well, all these all these books behind me, you know, when you look at a book on IR theory, somewhere there's always an international relations theory. There's always a chapter on that says uh, domestic and foreign policy are related. Right, right. But, you know— I, I remember that concise. You remember that? <laughs> well, it turns out to be true. In other words, for the first time in my lifetime, it's vividly true. It's always been true, but it's vividly true now because— um, you know, our international power is so closely related to our domestic well-being. If you look at, you know, global opinion of the United States as measured by the surveys of the Pew Organization, 
it has been falling pretty steadily uh, over the last 30 years, really. And that's our soft power. So we, we always think in terms of hard power, you know, our military balance with China or Russia and so forth. And that's important. But I've always thought with the United States, equally important is our soft power. That is what it, the United States is fundamentally an idea. And, uh, you know, for a long time, 70% of the box office receipts for American movies were overseas. May still be. I haven't checked that lately. But that's our soft power, our culture, what people think of us. A friend of mine who goes to Iran quite often says that on the street in Iran, as distinct from the government, America's uh, more popular than at any place in the Middle East other than maybe Israel. But that's not the government view in Iran. So that's our soft power, and we have, to we have to attend to that. And our soft power right now is suffering badly because of what the world sees going on here. How can you be the beacon of democracy when your own democracy is literally under assault within your own country? And I don't want to get into politics, but because I, you know, I suspect that this the point we've arrived at is the result of bad politics for more than four years. We, we need to somehow fix this. Uh, the last time I wrote a paper on U.S. foreign policy. This was one of my major themes that, to a large degree, if we don't deal with the partisanship in our own country, we're, we're not going to have, we're going to lose our power overseas because it is mostly soft power, you know, backed up by hard power, but it's mostly soft power. Uh, I'm not the one to say how we do that because I've spent most of my life looking at other countries, but I've, start, I've seen in the last years some of the most alarming attributes you see in other countries are starting to appear here. Right. That's the scary thing. In fact, people used to ask, I wrote an op-ed once on, I was being asked, why do former intelligence officers speak out? Because I, you know, have spoken out a lot in the last four years. And the, the point of it was, aren't you guys supposed to be non-political and neutral? Yes. And I haven't spoken out too much lately, but I wrote an op-ed that said, the only reason we're doing this is that we're starting to see as intelligence officers who spent our lives focusing on problems overseas, we're now starting to see the things that threaten those countries begin to threaten our own country. That's why we're speaking out, uh, not just me, but a lot of others as well. Let's bring our look back overseas. And you mentioned Iran. Certainly, Iran continues to be a major problem as it has signaled over and over again in the last year that intends to continue enriching uranium. How does one try to prevent that enrichment from reaching its final stage, which is the creation of a bomb? Uh, this problem is getting away from us. Uh, uh, there's news that the U.S. and Iran will be resume negotiations uh, soon. But since we left the agreement in 2017, 2017 or 2018 under the Trump administration, the 2015 nuclear agreement, Iran is now enriched, they, they tell us, there's no reason to doubt this, about 180 kilograms of uranium to 20% enrichment. And when you reach 20%, it's a, it's a short leap to get to the uh, 90% range. Getting to 20% is the hard part. Then it's a short leap to get to the weapons-grade enrichment level. So they are now approaching what we call breakout, meaning having the conditions to quickly move to a, a functioning nuclear weapon. And I think this problem could get away from us because they're going to have very tough requirements in this negotiation. They're not going to want to just say, 
uh, okay, we, we can sign the same piece of paper again. They're going to want to add requirements to it, and we're going to want to add requirements to it uh, for limitations. I don't know this, but I'm guessing for limitations on missiles and other things. So I, I can't make any predictions here, but I, I would say, if I had to give odds, I would say the, the odds are, you know, 70-30 against us getting to an agreement with them. And I don't think they're going to brandish a nuclear weapon if we fail in these negotiations. I think they will stay hovering right at breakout, which is the worst possible world, because they can claim not to be a nuclear weapon state, but we know that they can become one very quickly. This will leave the Israelis and the Saudis and others in that region very nervous, although, again, the politics of the Middle East is changing. That's the other. Th- that's another thing that you know we could put on your, your list. The, the politics is not revolving around the United States as it once did. They're starting to deal with each other a lot more, and, and uh, the, the UAE and the Saudis have started you know, taking tentative steps toward Iran and vice versa. Nonetheless, if they get to that point again, there's going to be a strong regional desire to stop them and or to proliferate such weapons within the Middle East. And a country like Saudi Arabia could get there very quickly uh, with help of Pakistan. So that's a bad problem. And, uh, but again, my first comment, things come to people who focus. That's why I am encouraged that the United States and Russia have begun negotiations in Geneva or Vienna within the last month or so, again, on arms control beyond the New START agreement. When I was in Moscow the last time, we met with Sergei Ryabkov, who was the chief arms control person there in their foreign ministry. And he told us flat out, this would have been 2018, President Putin has forbidden any negotiations at this point. Because we, we were saying, shouldn't we get back to this? At that point, the New START agreement was about to expire. He said, we're, we're not doing it. Uh, right now. And the fact that they've begun to talk, that we've begun to talk, tells me that whatever Putin and Biden did in Vienna must have been more businesslike and, and serious than what had happened in the previous four years. So when I say focus, if we don't get that part of this nuclear equation right, we're, we're sending the wrong message to countries like North Korea and Iran. They have to see the United States and Russia focusing on reductions of nuclear weapons as we are pledged to do under the non-proliferation treaty then we have some moral high ground to stand on when we go to the iranians without that the iranians say well you know you're not doing anything we're an independent country we can do whatever we want we've covered a lot of the external threats regarding countries we talked about china we talked about russia and iran and other threats that are their country specific and as we wrap up this great conversation let's talk a little bit about other factors that are shuffling the global power structure that are transnational like migration climate change and of course the kind of atomization of terrorism as as forces of instability what do you believe are the main threats to global peace right now well, I think on that score, you have to look at large global trends. And actually, the uh, intelligence community does this every five years. And thinking about I was involved in it years ago and began that process uh, when I was there. Thinking about the, the things I took away from it over years, these big global trends are the drivers here. Demographics. You know, the world population is increasing exponentially. It'll get to 8 billion within a couple of decades. Most of this growth 
less than 2 to 3% is in the developed world. Most of it, if you, if you had a map here and you put a big red dot where the development occurs, most of it would be in Africa, South Asia, and parts of Southeast Asia. Countries like China, Europe, Japan, all aging. Uh, so those countries that are growing rapidly are also very young. The other big trend is urbanization. We're heading for to a world where like 65% of the world's population lives in cities, megacities. So you add all of that up, and you get the classic formula of governments growing, those governments that are less qualified to provide services to a growing, demanding population. That, in turn, stimulates migration, and people migrate to places like Europe, the United States, even Belarus lately, tragically. So I think those are the big drivers, things that are a bit beyond our control. And then, you know, add, add disease into that. And it, it takes you again back at terrorism. Let's look at terrorism. I always think the way you deal with terrorism, that's what I did the last four years or so I was in government. You got to do three things. You have to destroy the leadership. You have to deny it safe haven, and you have to change the conditions that give rise to the whole thing. Well, what I've just talked about are among the conditions that give rise to it. And, you know, no intelligence agency can deal with that. That's an all-of-government, maybe all-of-globe problem. So we have to think about our coordinating our development programs globally, our assistance programs globally, our humanitarian programs globally, uh, in order to uh, deal with those big trends like demographic change, urbanization, uh, migration, and, you know, put climate change into the mix uh, also stimulates all of that because parts of the world, you know, three billion people in the world now don't have access daily to safe, clean water. It's probably going to grow. And people underestimate the role of water. Water is essential to life on this earth. And if you don't have access to clean, safe water, nothing else works. A third of the world's surface is covered by river uh, what do you call that, that the, where they flow into the sea, river uh, deltas or something that are shared by more than one country. So again, that's a, that's a transnational problem, access to water. Again, you know, I don't have solutions here. I feel like I'm admiring the problem when I go through all of that. But, but that's the starting point. Remember I said earlier, you have to start with the realities. That's, that's kind of what I'm doing. You've done a great job of laying them out. Professor John McLaughlin, thank you so much for this very engaging conversation, and thank you for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. Peter, of all the topics that were addressed in this great conversation, all the threats that were laid out and what you call a laundry list of, of issues that we're concerned about in terms of risk to the United States and the world, there's something that struck me that it, it might be obvious, but he said it a few times, and I, it made me rethink this whole sense of urgency. He mentioned how it takes time to build protection against security risks. And he mentioned it about the Cold War. He mentioned it about cyber. And he mentioned it about terrorism. And I wonder if we're too quick to judge these vulnerabilities, although, of course, surpassing this protection is, is really dangerous. But I wonder if we're neglecting to think that this thing, these things take time. They take time to develop. I think that's a really good thought. And the other big thought I had from this conversation was his admonition that good things come to those who focus. 
Boy, it seems like the United States has enormous difficulty focusing these days, as do so many other nations with the plethora of problems and the polarizations that are everywhere in our society. We've gone long today, Mooney, so I just want to close up to say thank you so much again to our listeners for joining us on Altamar. Don't forget that you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time.